Tyrannosaurus Rex. I am your host, Jason Danger. And I am Jeremy Bryan. And today we are going to be talking movies. Uh, first movie Jeremy picked was uh, Little Shop of Horrors. 1986. And I chose the, 20, the 2012 version of Much Ado About Nothing. So how was your week? Or your weeks? Okay, I uh, I watched uh, watched my nephews in space. Um, right, your space nephews. Yep, space nephews. Yep, they uh, were a handful, quite the handful. But I think overall we all had fun. So that that was the main thing. I think we had fun, but they definitely kept me busy. Did you get any work done? None. None nice. at all. So, yeah. Hopefully, I'm going to be playing catch-up all this week and next week, trying to catch up to for all the stuff that I've been trying to get done. So, yeah. But, yeah. But it was still, it ended up being fun. So. Right on. I, what did I do? I finished up Joe Bob Briggs's marathon and it was kind of even though even though they have um kind of greenlit more stuff with him because of the how good of a reception they got for the marathon that they did like when it came down to the end of the last episode it was still a little strangely like bittersweet like it's just kind of how they filmed it because they kind of expected that that was going to be the last thing that oh. Bob Briggs was going to do yeah so it kind of ends in a bittersweet sort of way even knowing that there was going to be more stuff, though, it still kind of felt, you, know, you, you felt it. It was... Felt like the end. Yeah, it felt like the end. But it was pretty good. Um, I think there's only maybe like three movies that I hadn't seen. There was like a lesbian vampire thing called Daughters of Darkness, which was real dry. But it's I guess it's kind of a classic. Like a lot of people seem to hold it in pretty high high regards. But it was... Probably a little too dry for my taste. That was released in like maybe the early 70s, if not like 1970. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't remember what. Oh, um, Blood Feast. Blood Feast was uh, uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis's like first movie, and he's like the king of splatter. And this was done in the 60s, like as a drive in flick real like dirt cheap production and a very very like transparent sort of storyline like nothing real major it's just a guy who worships an, an Egyptian goddess killing I think women entirely and taking pieces of them to add to like a stew that he's making to try and <laughs> to try and bring the goddess back to life and he's a caterer too by the way which is just hilarious um it's got a real campy vibe to it. It's it's a lot of fun. I was I was I had heard about the movie before because it's kind of a classic, but I had just never gotten around to seeing it, and I was kind of glad I got to see it. It was actually pretty good. I liked it quite a bit. It's got kind of like a nineteen sixties Batman sort of feel to it. It's like that kind of camp. Oh. So campy as fuck. So yeah, that's what I did. So watch Joe Bob Briggs. Yeah, you should. It's good. Before he goes away. Yeah. 
Um, and yeah, you can find that you, know, you can find that on Shutter, um, either the the actual site itself. It's a, like a five dollar a month membership, um, or you can actually get the Shutter channel through Amazon Prime. It's also five bucks. Um, yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, first movie. Little Shop of Horrors, 1986, which um, I'm not sure if a lot of people know this or not, but it's based off of kind of an off-Broadway off play, which in turn is based off of a movie from 1960, which was not a musical. It was uh, a low-budget Roger Corman, like, horror comedy. Um that really got very little fanfare at the time. It was pretty much forgotten uh, around the time that um, they turned it into a stage play, a musical. And that, I guess, was fairly popular. It was popular enough that somebody wanted to make a movie about it or off of it. Yep. And uh, and they did. And it turned out pretty great. So it starred uh, Rick Moranis as the main character, uh, Seymour Krelborn. Uh, Ellen Green as Audrey, and Vincent Gardenia as the um, the flower shop owner, Mushnik. There's also like some special appearances in there from Steve Martin and Trisha Campbell, who a lot of you may recognize as um, Martin Lawrence's ex-wife, I think. Uh, she co-starred with him on the Martin Lawrence uh, sitcom that he had back in the I want to say the mid nineties. I think it was just yeah, I think it was yeah. just called Martin. Um, and she plays as one of the uh, the singers. Her name was in the, in the movie. Her name was Chiffon. Um, and Bill Murray has a, a bit part in there as well. Jim Belushi. Yeah, that was an interesting story about that that we'll get into in a little bit. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and uh, uh, Jack Nicholson actually starred in the 1960 yeah, one as well. Yeah, it was one of his, his first performances. Yeah. He played the role that Bill Murray plays in the new one, or in the most more more recent one. But yeah, so this movie, when it came out, when, um, when it was... After they had finished filming it in 86, they did a couple of um, test screenings of the film, and uh, audiences hated it. Um, and the reason that they hated it specifically was because of the ending. And because of that, we now have the uh, um, Audrey and Seymour move into the nice picket fence house and live happily ever after, and that's not how the movie is actually supposed to end. Uh, the actual end of the movie, Audrey, too, wins. He eats both Seymour and Audrey. Oh, and has a bunch of little baby, uh, little baby Audrey twos, and uh, people rush out to go pick up, uh, to, to go buy the the plants, because um, it becomes kind of like a like a worldwide craze, uh, which leads into scenes of gigantic Audrey twos storming through cities, tearing down buildings and uh, laughing and cackling and taking over the planet and then the movie ends 
I wonder if that's how the stage musical ends. The stage musical ends something close to that. <coughs> All right. I don't know exactly how close, but that original ending is more in line with um, with the, the stage musical. And uh, in, I think, I want to say 2002 or 2012, I don't remember off the top of my head, uh, they actually did finally release, because they thought a lot of that footage was lost, they finally did release that ending in a director's cut, which is what I wound up watching last night. And it is a way, way better film than the original. That ending is spectacular. Um, when, when the test screenings bombed, uh, they went back and they refilmed uh, a lot of the scenes. Initially, when Audrey dies, it's the, the scene where Audrey 2 calls her up on the payphone mm-hmm. and tricks her into coming over, and he starts to eat her, and then uh, Seymour comes in and uh, rescues her at the last minute. Well, in this one, um, he rescues her and takes her out to the alley to get away from, from Audrey 2, but she's already uh, succumbing to her wounds. And so um, her with her dying breath, she tells Seymour that she wants... Uh, he confesses to her, first of all, that he has been feeding people to Audrey too, and that's how all this is going on. And then she, with her dying breath, she tells him that she wants him to feed her to Audrey too, because then she'll always be with him. Oh. Which seems like a weird roundabout kind of logic. It doesn't It doesn't play out quite as well as, as I would like, but it's fine. So he does that, and then... Um, and then he runs across the street and up onto the roof of the next building over, and he's preparing to, th- he's getting ready to throw himself off of the building because he doesn't want to be without the love of his life. And then um, the character of Patrick Martin appears behind him. Now, in the, the theatrical version, Patrick Martin is played by Jim Belushi because they did reshoots, and the original actor wasn't available um, to reprise his role. So in the director's cut, though, the uh, <clears throat> the actor who plays him is Paul Dooley. Uh, he comes up behind uh, Seymour on the roof and offers to buy clippings of uh, Audrey to to sell to other plant shops and stuff. And um, this kind of freaks Seymour out, and he says, "No, I'll never sell," or whatever, and runs off um, because he gets the idea that. This has been Audrey 2's plan the entire time, is moral domination. So he goes and confronts Audrey 2 about it, and uh, they have the whole showdown scene, as it was originally filmed um, in the theatrical cut, except in the end, instead of um, when the building collapses it killing Audrey 2, uh, it doesn't affect him at all, and he grabs a hold of, um, of Seymour and stuffs him in his mouth, Swallow some whole, and uh, and then the next scene is just tons and tons and tons of shoppers buying Audrey twos off of store shelves, and fighting over them like it was Black Friday. Black Friday, like it was yeah. Black Friday, and then it you get a, a like I guess like a news bulletin about oh my God, run for your lives, the giant plants are killing us all, and then it's just scenes of devastation of gigantic Audrey twos trampling through cities and destroying everything and it ends with them on top of the statue of liberty it's beautiful it's such a great ending 
So if you can find the director's cut of uh, Little Shop of Horrors, do so. It's such a better film. Yeah, I mean, I kind of like the idea of them living happily ever after, which I think is probably, you know, why they reshot it that way. Yeah, it resonated better with audiences. Yeah. 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 I think the the thing that kept moving the whole movie forward too were those little breaks in between. You had the the Greek chorus, the urchins. Uh, they kept coming in at mm. key moments and would sing us into the kind of the next scene. Greek chorus is defined as a non individualized group that comment with a collective voice. That's right. basically what that means. And uh, uh, we, we see that in several other uh, representations um, in uh, other different movies as well. Uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, you had the Oompa Loompas. Right. Um, the Hercules cartoon, you had the Three Muses, which is, I mean, they were the Greek chorus, you know. You're trying to do Are you talking Greek. about the Disney Hercules yeah, movie? Yeah, okay. the Disney Hercules. I never saw it, yeah. so. Yeah. Uh, uh, something about Mary, something about Mary had the band. I vaguely remember the band. There. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and in Babe, the movie about the pig. Never watched it. Yeah, they had three singing mice in there. Yeah. So, but it's uh, I don't know. It's it's not overdone enough that I think I still enjoy it every time I actually see it used. Yeah. That it's it's just, you know once in a while a movie comes out and they're like hey let's do this and it just I don't know it's a nice little kitschy sort of way to move the story along yeah it works it works really well yeah. for this film yeah especially yeah. for this film it worked really well um, another thing that worked well for this film is that they wrote all original songs for it <laughs> they didn't swipe modern songs and medley them rehash them write it off as some bullshit I was ahead of my time artistic (laughs) so it was nice to see them put in that effort (laughs) they're good songs too yeah no they're really good songs I can uh, I I can't even count how many times I've watched this movie but it's uh, I actually have around around here somewhere I have a songbook my piano and vocal book that I bought when I was in high school still uh, with all the main songs. I always planned on using one of them as an audition for some musical if I auditioned for another one ever. There's a couple in there I really liked, but uh, I don't know. Uh, hmm. Orin's Orin Scrivello, DDS. The do- or the dentist? Played by Steve Martin, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably one of my... And he wasn't technically the main villain in this, because Audrey right. II was the main villain, but he was a secondary villain and uh, would be just a fun part to play. Yeah. You know? If, in the original movie... Um, he was he was still a bastard, but he was not. He was like a, a total side character. There's a whole kind of um, sort of slapstick scene um, where he has already knocked out the doctor, 
where uh, sorry where um, Seymour has already knocked out the dentist um, to to get him ready to take over to Audrey two when um, Jack Nicholson's character arrives. So that's kind of this slapstick scene where uh, Seymour has to perform the dental surgery on um, on Jack Nicholson who's playing paying the guy who loves pain, and that's why it works so well. That's why Jack Nicholson likes Jack Nicholson's character uh, likes the pain so much because because Seymour doesn't know what he's doing. So and he's wearing like a surgical mask the whole time to hide his face and. But yeah, he's just a the the dentist is just a customer of the um, of the florist shop. Uh, he orders like one fern and one plant or something every month or so to to put in his um, in his waiting room. Mm. So no, I, I actually I, li- I like the way the musical handled it though with mm. uh, you know uh, Bill Murray playing Arthur Denton. Yeah. Uh, and then Arthur Denton's love of pain ends up pissing off uh, Steve, piss, pissing Steve off Martin. Steve Martin's character, you know. Yeah. Then he kicks him out. I mean, because yeah. the dentist is all about wanting to inflict the pain, and then this guy's enjoying it, and he's yeah. like, "Get the fuck out of here!" <laughs> yeah, the sadist meets the masochist. Yeah, yeah. The, um, the dentist is better. Um, uh, in integrated into the story in the 1986 film than he is in the 1960 film, and a lot of the characters are kind of like that too. Um, there's actually a character in the 1960 film that isn't in the 1986 film, and that is um, uh, Seymour's mother, who is kind of like a hypochondriac alcoholic, oh. and uh, and. Seymour is actually working at the florist shop so he can take care of her. In the 1986 version, it's established that Seymour is an orphan and that he was taken in by Mushnik and has been working for him ever since. So that, And her character doesn't really play a whole huge part in the, in the film either. So a lot of these side characters are just really, they feel kind of tacked on in the 1960 version. So they did a, a much better job in the 86 one of like making these characters fit in a lot better. Also, your buddy Christopher Guest shows up in this film. He plays the very first customer after they put Audrey oh, yeah. in the window. He oh, goes, yeah. That's a very interesting plant. Yeah. I forgot that was him, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, he's, he's one of those actors, I swear to God. He shows up in so many things, and you don't really notice him until you notice him, and then you're like, oh, yeah, Christopher mm-hmm. Guest is in that movie. Yeah, he does that a lot in those girls singing when they're telling the story, Seymour walking down the road, yeah. walks across the Chinaman's uh, little thing. They actually do, there's a really funny um, sequence in this movie where they where they play with the, the music a bit mm-hmm. that I really like where, um, where Seymour goes to see uh, Wink Wilkinson or Wink Wilkins. Oh, in the in the radio show. In the radio yeah. show, yeah. John Candy. And um, before this has happened, he's already. Uh, I guess the fir- when the first customer comes in, he wants to know um, where. I don't know if it was the first customer or not, or if it was Mush Mushnik, but somebody earlier asks um, Seymour where he got the plant. Maybe it was maybe it was Audrey even. 
And so he relays the story about the eclipse and the lightning bolt and all that. Um, and it, as soon as he starts to tell the story, the song kicks in. And so when he goes and sees uh, Wink Wilkins or whatever the hell that guy's name is, I feel real dumb. Wink, it is Wilkinson. All right, so when he goes and 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 um, talks to Wink Wilkinson about the plant, when he goes to show him on this weird and wacky uh, radio show. Um, Wink asks him, "Where'd you get such a strange plant?" And they kick into the song and then cut to another scene completely. Cut and you don't like. It's like he was going to sh- they were yeah. gonna replay the whole scene again. Yep. But they cut it off right immediately after that first note, and it was it works really well. I do. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and it goes to the next scene. So. Total eclipse of the sun. Yeah. I think there's something else about this film that if I had written down a note, I would have remembered to talk about. It seemed kind of important. Oh. There is kind of a like a an interesting sort of like on stage sort of feel to this movie, like especially when they they're out on Skid Row and you can kind of see like the matte paintings in the background. Yeah. It kind of feels a lot like they're on a stage. And the shop too. The shop felt yeah, you know, more like a stage. I kind of wish they would have leaned into that a little more. I kind of mm-hmm. wish they would have had scenes like there's a scene at one point where I don't know somebody exits the shop and you have like a real like long far back view of like the street uh, of like the Skid Row street that they all live on and all the buildings and stuff and I kind of wish that you'd have like something that kind of like the bottom of the stage at the bottom of the shot and then maybe see the lights and the rafters at the top of the shot and kind of have that sort of vibe of like it's all taking place on a stage I kind of feel like I mean the movie's fine without it but it kind of feels yeah. like it would have added something kind of nice too yeah that could have been kind of cool to see so that's kind of my my one big gripe with the film is they didn't lean hard enough into a, a cosmetic choice, I guess. Yeah. So. Which teach their own. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> but yeah, um, this is a film that I grew up with. I love this movie, and um, having seen the director's cut just recently, uh, found a new reason to fall in love with the movie again. Director's Cut really is just a much better ending. So the one musical Jeremy likes. Yeah, I just kind of I just straight up like this musical. Yeah. So I think it's because I think I like it because it 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 came right at that right time for me. Like I was like nine when this movie was released. Mm-hmm. So like it was just before like the black cynicism set in. <laughs> So it just it slid in right under the radar, and I was listening to like uh, you know Weird Al Yankovic at the time, and some of the songs in here are very kind of kitschy, Weird Alish sort of vibe to them. I can see that. So yeah, it just it was a movie that just hit at the right time. Right about the time you're still kind of maybe getting over watching Disney and stuff like that. Anyway, so, on to much ado about nothing. Uh. This is the Joss Whedon um, directed version that came out in 2012. Um, originally written by William Shakespeare. There was the 1993 by Kenneth Branagh, which which I kind of sort of uh, not grew up with per se. I mean, I was in high school by that point, but um, I fell in love with it. I, I 
it was one uh, Shakespeare language is something that you have to kind of get used to get used to yeah hmm. yeah think about get used to um, with Kenneth Branagh's I remember having to watch it twice generally before I started getting the jokes hmm. and I don't know if it's just because I've seen that one so many times but um, when I first went to see this in 2012, it was released at uh, independent theaters. Um, went to go see it, and the way the dialogue flowed throughout this, I didn't have to think about it that hard. I didn't have to watch it a second time. Uh, I got the jokes right away. Like, they just seemed to flow well and just... Uh, you know, one into the next, and they just, I don't know, it, it made a lot more sense. And again, maybe that's different perspective, different time. I watched the old one plenty of times, so maybe it's ingrained in here somewhere. Now I kind of get it. I don't know, but um, I don't know. The, the cool thing I liked about it, though, uh, Joss Whedon regularly has Shakespeare readings at his house. And then I guess somewhere in the middle of uh, um, when he was Avengers. filming when he was filming the Avengers movie, mm -hmm. they had a little bit of a break, and he decided to turn one of these Shakespeare reading sessions into making a movie with a bunch of people that he's friends with, uh, past actors he worked with, family members, people that he slept with that wasn't his wife. Yeah, all of those, and. Uh, uh, brought them in, filmed it in uh, 12 days. Took them 12 days to film this entire movie at his house. And then, uh, you know, edited it, released it, went on the indie scene for a bit, and then ended up going through in independent theaters and stuff like that. And I, don't, I, thought, it was, I thought it was pretty well done, personally. Mm. Supposedly it was filmed on a micro-budget. I guess most of it came out of um, Joss Whedon's own pocket. He hasn't released how much he spent to make it, but it brought in four mil, so it probably probably turned around pretty, pretty yeah. good return. Yeah, so. I mean, you're using your own equipment that you have. You're using your own house. Yeah, I mean, uh, they're using a, a modern, as opposed to Kenneth Branagh's uh, right. 93, you know, where they tried to stay traditional Shakespeare. Uh, the, the 2012 one, they went more modern, so the guys are wearing suits and ties. They're driving cars. Uh, you know, they've got cell phones and stuff like that. So um, they had a more modern uh, theme to it, but still with the uh, Shakespearean language attached. Yeah. As it, I, I think the only reason that it, it is set in modern... I don't know if it's supposed to be set in America or not. I mean, it's not... The original play obviously wasn't, but yeah. the only reason that there's the whole modern contrivance to it is because it was filmed on a micro budget. Like that's yeah, I think they yeah, you, had don't, you don't have for, to yeah, you don't have to pay for costumes if you tell people wear your best suit or whatever, show yeah. up and read Shakespeare. I don't really think it works though for this film. Like mm -hmm. it doesn't like isn't it works in Romeo plus Juliet because they shift that story into an entirely different setting. So it's a setting with gangsters fighting in the mm. 90s or whatever. 
This doesn't do any of that. It's just that play set in modern times. It's like an episode of 30-something with people speaking Shakespearean speak. Like it's just a bunch of yuppies sitting around their house reading Shakespeare. I don't... It, I understand why it was done. Um, and I understand that if you don't want to spend a shit ton of money, then that's how it's going to have to be done. But I don't think that, on the whole, it works for this particular film. I think it just comes off as uh, forced. It feels contrived. Mm. So I did... I did uh, there, there were things I missed uh, in relation, thinking back to the original uh i mean not missed because they weren't done well but just um with the 93 version uh michael keaton ends up playing dogberry which is the part that nathan fillion plays in, right. in this one uh the constable right and uh, from what i understand typically dogberry is super slapsticky over the top that's right. how most people portray him when he's on the stage and stuff like that and Nathan Fillion's was actually a little bit more um, it was still funny but it was a little bit more bumbling yeah he was more like a bumbling detective but not like over the top yeah. where Michael Keaton played him insanely over the top uh, super slapsticky. I mean, they were riding around town on invisible horse with coconuts, you know, Monty Python-esque type stuff. Like, mm. it was very... It was fun and cute when I saw that version, but um, I actually really liked the more Columbo-esque style that I think uh, yeah. that I think the uh, Nathan Fillion's approach to it had because he was more like just a normal guy but a bumbling normal detective guy <laughs> yeah that that playstation by the way is just somebody's basement the what the playstation oh oh yeah you know that was that was a basement in his house obviously <laughs> just somebody's basement <laughs> yeah no that was definitely a basement but um <laughs> And as much as uh, I like the main the main storyline is the relationship between uh, Claudio and Hero. Is that the main storyline? It's supposed to be the main storyline. Because the way that this movie presents it is that Beatrice and Benedict is the main storyline. And Beatrice and Benedict, I mean, yeah. So there's there's the two storylines going on at the same time, Claudio and Hero. And, you know, they're pushing for that marriage to happen. Beatrice okay. and Benedict, of course, are, like, at odds and don't like each other and all that. Okay, so, well, all right, I have a question about this then. In the Shakespearean play itself, which is supposed to be the main storyline? Is the storyline about Hero and Claudio, or is it about Beatrice and Benedict? It's a, it's about both, I mean, because... But, but I think if you were casting, in theory, the the main one would be Claudio and Hero. Okay. But then, with their love being found, they decide to turn around and play a prank on, right. you know, her sister and Benedict. Are they well, cousins? Yeah. Her cousin? 
Was it cousin? I think they're cousins. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. And th- and that ends up uh, any way I've seen it. The uh, Benedict and and uh, Beatrice ends up being just kind of fun, no matter what. Because so in the play, does the play start with Beatrice and Benedict, or does it start with Claudio meeting Hero? It starts with um, the. Um, basically the men returning from war is where it starts and then uh, Beatrice and Benedict exchange words they know each other from previous times whatever yeah well because I mean this version of the movie starts with Beatrice with some guy leaving Beatrice's bed so it's focused it's focused on Beatrice right from the start right and then we move into later on into the kitchen scene where they have where she's having conversations with Leonardo and the rest of the family about Benedict and what a cock Benedict is yeah, and how much yeah. she doesn't like him. So we're focused very heavily on Beatrice and her view of Benedict. Yeah, I think this it, one. I think this one did. Yeah, did focus more on them, and it okay. was kind of. I mean, it had a taming of the shrew sort of. Um, I don't know if you ever saw any of that, no. but, but uh, Be- Beatrice basically. Uh, kind of a recurring role through a lot of Shakespeare stuff. Um, she is, for all intents purposes, the shrew. The shrew, And yeah. Benedict is taming her. Right. More or less. Or yeah. they're both the shrew and they're both trying to tame each yeah. other. Yeah, I guess that's probably more. Yeah. Yeah, but I actually made a, a, a note about this because I wasn't so confused about this. So, from my perspective, uh, the story of Beatrice and Benedict is supposed to be the A story. That's supposed to be the story that we're supposed to focus on. Um... And it's the most boring part of the film. <laughs> I don't, and I didn't, I don't know, I mean, when I was writing this, I wasn't sure if this was because uh, Shakespeare is a bad writer or because Whedon is a bad filmmaker. <laughs> because the whole, like, everything, all of the intrigue and everything seems to focus mostly around Hero and Claudio. So it felt like that should have been the natural yeah, A that, story. Yeah, that was supposed to be the A story. All right. Well, Joss Whedon fucked that all up as far as I'm concerned. The whole um, focusing on Beatrice and Benedict, which is a fine side story, it doesn't feel like it should be the crux of the story. It feels like all of the intrigue comes from Claudio and Hero, and so... Yeah, it should, it should be Claudio, Hero, and then, like... Beatrice and Benedict are supposed to kind of be a little bit comedy relief, right? You know, throughout the whole thing because uh, they're both when they start realizing their feelings for each other, then it becomes super fucking awkward for both of them when they start trying to actually be nice to each other because they're not used to that. Mm. So, and and that's the fun part of it, you know, is all of that, mm. and uh, that is one thing. Uh, um, the 93 version, Kenneth Branagh adapted it right. and directed it and then also played Benedict in it. And he's an amazing actor. Right. Um, and then Emma Thompson is his wife mm-hmm. and she played Beatrice. And those two playing those parts together... Uh, had a lot of just 
Well, I mean, if they're married in real life, yeah. and they've already got the chemistry to work. Exactly, off of, so. exactly. Yeah. So they, I mean, they nailed it, and you could tell they were having fun for that one. Mm-hmm. So I did miss a little bit of that with, with this one. I still thought it was done okay. You differ on that. Yeah, <laughs> but, well, I think I think but, I think Whedon fucked it up, and I mean, I, I suppose the more Jaws Whedon films we have on this podcast, the more you guys will come to understand that. <laughs> Whedon fucked it up is a recurring theme with me. I just feel like by focusing on Beatrice, he took the most, the more boring storyline and made that the centerpiece of the film. And it clearly, because even when he does that, the other storyline is the one that feels like it should be the focus. Yeah, that's the one that's driving the story forward is is the hero and and Claudio storyline. That's what moves the whole thing forward, so... So, I I think I think yeah I just, I think Whedon fucked it up, and I mean I should probably like just lay it out on the table like I'm coming from this from perspective is I I don't like Joss Whedon, I don't think he's a particularly I think he's a fine filmmaker I don't think he's a particularly great writer I think he he spends too much time being clever and not enough time focusing on what's supposed to be the right story obviously, <laughs> um, but like even like the whole like. Firefly and which one was the movie and which one was the uh, TV show? Firefly was the TV show. Firefly right? was the TV show, yeah. And so the movie was Serenity. Serenity. Yeah. So the scene in Serenity where um, as Alan Tudyk, mm-hmm. where he dies. Oh. Spoiler, he dies. I laughed. Oh. The way that Whedon filmed it, it felt like a gag. It felt like this was the punchline to a joke. And it wasn't supposed to be funny. Yeah. So and these are my problems with Whedon. I, I think he gets too caught up trying to be clever. Like that whole Alan Tudyk's death in that movie is a surprise. It comes out of nowhere. Yeah. You're not supposed to expect it. Um, and by trying to be cutesy and clever like that, it wound up feeling like the punchline to a joke. And didn't hold the same emotional weight for me that I think it held for true fans of Joss Whedon, I guess. Or at least true fans of Firefly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, One way or another, it didn't work for me. And a lot of stuff, I mean, I think that Avengers and Age of Ultron are the most disposable movies in... I mean, they're they're... They're some of the most disposable movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And they're kind of, in a sense, supposed to be that way. They're uh, big punch-em-up spectacle films. The storyline is just enough there to congeal everything together so it doesn't fly off into into yeah into oblivion. But And I think it feels like that's maybe the peak of where Joss Whedon's story writing is it feels like anything beside uh, aside from that he wants to get clever about it and make it real cheeky and it, it just focus on the fucking story dude and don't try to be a hipster about it i think <laughs> just service the fucking story i think probably uh, the greatest problem there and and you might be right on that uh he spent so many years doing TV shows. Yeah. And 
you know, you're basically recording, trying to get a 45 minutes, 40 minutes or whatever, enough to put on TV for that week, you know? Right. And, uh, but it's an ongoing thing. So yeah. you can always cut stuff. You can always change stuff around, add other things, change the story up when something seems like it's not working. So yeah. movies, different story, you know, you're, once you finish it, that's what you get. You don't get to change the story a couple weeks later with some surprise twist, you know. Yeah. So, and I think that might be it. And yeah, I, I don't know. Because I, I did, um, I liked Serenity okay, but it wasn't as good as Firefly itself, the yeah. TV show. I thought the TV show was awesome. I thought it was... Um, fairly original to a point. I mean, it was cowboys in space, you know. I guess, but by that point in time, they'd already had, like, Lex and Farscape, which I felt were far more original. I mean, I don't know. There seems to be some sort of an emotional weight that gets tagged on to Joss Whedon TV projects that I don't understand. I've watched um, some Buffy the Vampire Slayer stuff. I've watched some of the Firefly stuff. And it just, I don't, I don't get it. It doesn't, it doesn't resonate with me. It feels, he feels like a low-rent Tarantino. He feels, he, he feels like he wants to be the dialogue guy. And he's just not. Yeah. So, I kind of feel like he's a good, he has more of a voice of his own than J.J. Abrams does. Mm-hmm. So I feel that he's better than just a, a maintenance director. I feel like he can write stuff that uh, maybe not necessarily auteurish, but you could you could you'll recognize his stuff even if he cut out the cheeky shit. You could recognize his stuff as his stuff specifically, and it can resonate with certain audiences and stuff yeah. like that. Where whereas somebody like J.J. Abrams is just good at mimicking other people's voices, yeah. he doesn't seem to have a voice of his own, and. Um, so I think that I think that that um, Joss Whedon is a step above that, but I don't think that he's in the class of director that people want to put him in. I don't think he's that great of a director. I think, technically speaking, and this is gonna this sounds way sacrilegious, and I know it does because I fucking hate the fact that I'm about to say this, but I think that Michael Bay has a more uh, defined voice than Joss Whedon does. I think he's more, and that's not necessarily a good or bad thing, but I think that he's more... Recognizable. Not just recognizable, but that he has formed a more solid voice of his own Mm -hmm. than Joss Whedon has. And I think it will, even if you cut the dialogue out of a Joss Whedon film, it's kind of, it almost feels like a movie of the week. That's kind of how, how I feel about him. So, I mean, I hate to shit all over people's Joss Whedon parade because I know <laughs> I know people love him. Yeah, no, there's definitely huge fans out there. I like I like a lot of his work, but I also you know have been disappointed by some of his work as well. So yeah. it's uh, I'm kind of I'm kind of iffy. But I mean, with that said, huge Firefly fan, and mm. I and I am with the Thrones on. I wish it would have continued forever. I wish it was still going now. Yeah. But 
Well, I mean, if it was, I mean, it wouldn't bother me. It's not, it's not something that, I mean, like, there's a lot of people that go, well, I fucking hate that, and so I'm glad that it's gone. Yeah. But, like, I, I'm just not going to watch it. Yeah. I don't mind that it, there's a ton of shit on television that I'm not at all interested in watching, and I don't want it to be canceled because I don't dig it. So, I mean, if Firefly had been able to go on and the fans were happy with the show, and they, that's great. I'm 100% okay with that. I just... I don't buy into the cult of personality behind this guy. Uh, and it has nothing to do with the stuff coming out about him cheating on his wife for 20 years or whatever the hell it was that he did. I don't really care about any of that. It's great to take little jabs at him and knock him off his pedestal, but I don't think that that really gets anything done either. Um, I just I don't see the attraction to this guy that so many people seem to have for him. And this movie doesn't help that because he gets this one thing wrong where he focuses on the wrong damn story. And I don't know if he was just trying to be different for the sake of being different. Like, I want to, I want this to be mine, and so I'm going to change the focus slightly. Mm. Or if he just didn't get that the hero story is supposed, the hero Claudio story is supposed to be the or, main story. Yeah, or maybe it came out in editing and that's what happened. Yeah, yeah. that could be it too. Yeah. Maybe it's the editor's fault, in ca- in which case, sorry, Joss. I don't know if he edited it or not. So. I don't know. I would say, though, if uh, you know you want to invite people that aren't family and friends to come read, I would be more than happy to join your Shakespeare parties. So give me a call. Oh, are you talking to Joss? <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm like, I'm not throwing any Shakespeare parties. <laughs> Another thing is I'm not really a fan of Shakespeare either. Um my grandmother actually had a mass market paperback copy of Much Ado About Nothing when I was a little kid. Oh. And this probably would have been around the time that I was like, I don't know, maybe seven or eight. I had just read The Hobbit and thought I was hot shit and decided I was going to take a crack at Much Ado About Nothing and got about two pages in and went, fuck that. It's different. I mean, so, from going from reading a novel to actually reading a play, it's a totally different mindset. Well, it's also it's not you, just so. that. It's also yeah. that the whole way of talking is different. Oh, yeah. At eight or nine years old, the stuff is might as well be Greek. To me. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, it definitely uh, took me a while. I, I, I think... You study some Shakespeare when you're in high school. Right. Um, we ended up actually performing a Midsummer Night's Dream in high school. So it was around high school. And then Much Ado About Nothing came out while I was in high school as well, the, the Kenneth Branagh version. So right. uh, that's really when most of my Shakespeare exposure was happening. Uh, and my mom had a book uh, William Shakespeare's complete collection or whatever book and she also had a little uh, gold leaf do you ever see the gold leaf photos of what anything oh yeah I've seen gold leaf gold leaf gold leaf photo she had one of uh, uh, Shakespeare's birthplace Mm -hmm. up on the wall so uh, got it when she was in England and um yeah, I don't know. So I had I had exposure of a kind at a younger age, but didn't really uh, get into it or think about it much. I did try reading Romeo and Juliet or something, you know, when I was a kid out of that big, big book of 
the complete collection. But, uh, yeah, never really paid it much mind, you know, after I, you try and read it like you did. And like, no, nah, I don't think so. Mm. Put, put it down, go back to reading The Hobbit or something, you know. Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty much high school is where it kind of, I guess, blossomed and started to appreciate it more. So, well, I never, I never built up that appreciation for Shakespeare. The more stuff that I'm like uh, inundated with, as as far as Shakespeare goes, kind of the less I kind of like the guy. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I can understand the whole idea. There's kind of this, this sort of cult of um, older is better sort of people out there that gravitate towards Shakespeare as being a great author and uh, I don't know classical music is the only music to listen to and and stuff like that only use records right yeah um, and it just I understand that he is a touchstone for you know modern uh, Western literature but I don't think that he's the be-all end-all that a lot of people he feels if you're not a theater nerd I don't see any real reason to be in any way focused on William Shakespeare I think he's a great touchstone for the theater crowd but I don't feel like he contributes nearly as much to the modern landscape or that he should at least than the authors that came after him that built upon his shoulders so I'm not stating that he shouldn't be like honored for what he brought to you know theater and literature and the likes but I don't think that there's just nothing that I've seen in his plays that make me feel like he and this is obviously I don't have any sort of like um, uh, anything of that era to kind of connect to right. like emotionally uh, but I just I kind of feel like s better stuff has come along in the interim and we don't pay that stuff nearly as much attention as we do this guy because he is William Shakespeare it feels like he feels like a Donald Trump to me he feels like his brand is what carries him along when his stories are not really that engaging I don't know I mean he you know he came up with uh some of the most for their time you know original stories and stuff like that but um, well my understanding though is that at that time he was essentially laughed off the stage that, yeah that critics called him low yeah and that he wasn't appreciated well, even, at yeah all. he was making so. what they considered low low comedy yeah. low art yeah but uh, they ended up telling um, they weren't bowing and scraping to entertain the kings right. you know stuff like that they were supposed to be entertainment for the masses and that's what you know what they were making uh, both the comedy and the drama and uh, and his plays had all of it you know he didn't just go out to make a comedy you know he went out to make a human experience you know I wonder if he was like 16th century Steven Spielberg. Yeah. 
yeah, I'd say more, more, more mm-hmm. that. But yeah, he uh, uh, very much, uh, you know, from the Romeo and Juliet. Uh, Juliet is willing to fake her own death. You know, even Hamlet. I mean, Hamlet's been done so many times. Hamlet might be like his one, like classic. The stop clock, just <laughs> the time right twice a day, sort of yeah, thing. Yeah. I kind of feel like that was his like idiot savant moment. Uh, yeah, Hamlet. I mean, Hamlet's done so many times because it is such an excellent yeah. uh, story as well. So, yeah, and Midsummer Night's Dream was a little more, a little more psychedelic. Yeah, whimsical psychedelic. Yeah, with all the fairies and yeah. stuff like that. But I don't know. Even even that's a fun one. Although I've not. I don't know that I've actually seen that one turned into a movie, unless I'm not a real, gets, not a real big budget movie anyway. Yeah, I think oddly enough, it tends to get turned into like episodes of TV shows. Like that seems to happen uh-huh. an awful lot. Like Lex had an episode that was based off of a Midsummer's Night Dream. So. Well, and they did they did use it. I mean, it's got good lines in it. It's got good, uh, you know, phrasing and stuff throughout certain parts. But um, I remember. Uh, don't remember movie. obviously Captain My Captain Dead Poet Society oh uh, Dead Poet Society that was the the play they used in there you know right when uh, the kid auditioned for and played the role of Puck for the Midsummer Night's Dream so yeah it was uh, I don't know yeah I, I definitely I, I would side more with he was the uh, Steven Spielberg of his generation. Hmm. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I know without a shadow of doubt that there are a bunch of people that disagree with me on this, but <laughs> I just, I don't, I don't think he's the hot shit that everybody else thinks that he is, and I think this play in particular is a pretty good example of. I mean, there's not a whole lot here. There's. A dude falls in love with a chick the first time he meets her. The next day, he's engaged to be married to her. And then the day after that, he's calling her a whore. Oh. <laughs> and that's basically the movie. Or the play. <laughs> I mean, you have, to, you have to tack on the side story with Beatrice and Benedict in order to fill out and even the, the stuff with the constables and stuff feels tacked on. It feels like well, we have to have some way to reveal to uh, Leonardo and company that they have been played by, was it Don John? Don John. And his henchmen. And uh, I don't know. We should probably discuss... Uh next time right well before we get to that i do right. I, I do want to say like this is essentially a bunch of bunch of guys that got together over a weekend and had themselves a little shakespeare party and filmed it and made a few bucks off of it and it's pretty harmless um i don't really hate this film it just it doesn't speak to me um i'm not the right audience for it at all i don't even understand why it's in black and white i don't think it's 
any more expensive to film in color. Yeah, I think it was just an artistic choice. It's another thing that I don't think works for this film because I don't think back to 15th century times as black and white. I think back to 1950s as black and white. And this movie doesn't have a 1950s feel to it. So Yeah. Yeah, not when they whip out their cell phones. Yeah. So, um, uh, I'm not a fan of this film. I don't hate it. It's no, Moulin Rouge is way worse than this film. (laughs) Um, You're never going to let me live that down. (laughs) That's just my new hate film right now. Like, I'm sure something else will come along that I hate even more than Moulin Rouge. But right now, Moulin Rouge is top of the fucking dog pile for terrible films. Um... I wouldn't watch this movie again, but I mean, I'm I, it, I I I was fine seeing it. Yeah, I didn't. You know, I wasn't like hate watching it the whole time. I was most of the time trying to figure out why the fuck any of the shit was written the way that it was written. Like <laughs> that was my main thing. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I def I definitely loved it, um, but uh, and have seen it. Uh, I mean, I've seen the the ninety three one several times i've seen this one probably three times since it came out maybe this one was the fourth time but um yeah i i would continue watching it again and maybe even have a shakespeare party watch them both back to back (laughs) well i mean you can invite me to your shakespeare party as long as you need somebody to sit in the background and laugh at all of you (laughs) be down for that all right so uh next time um so i've got some like uh, franchise movies that i need to start getting to and i was planning on doing that this week but um i was browsing through um uh, amazon prime earlier and noticed that there's another movie on there that i need to get around to and i figured now's the time to do it we can start the franchise films a little bit later on um, what do you mean by franchise films? Franchise fil- films in a series. So, you know, Friday the 13th oh, okay. or you know, okay. that kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, I was going to start in on my franchise films this week, but I decided uh, because this other movie's out on uh, Amazon Prime, it'll be real easy for people to get in there and watch it. Uh, so we're going with uh, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. Mm. This will be the first time that we've done a Peter Weller film. Surprisingly enough, RoboCop was not one that we did first. Um, Peter Weller is one of my favorite actors, uh, so any chance I get to throw one of his films in here. Oh, and it's got a bunch of like real great like character actors in it before they were famous, like um, Jeff Goldblum and Christopher Lloyd. So it's a great little piece of kitschy 1980s uh, schlock. So sounds fun. Yeah. Um, I decided to look through my list again that I made forever ago and haven't really looked at because other movies kept popping up, right. like you said. So uh, this time I actually looked at my list again, and uh, the first one up there that I had meant to get to a while ago, actually, was uh, Joe versus the Volcano. Oh, sweet. Yeah. I haven't seen that movie in a long time. long time. I don't know how easy that one's going to be to find. Uh, I looked a while back trying to see if I could find it, just, you know, streaming on one of the various services, and they didn't have it then. But 
they might now, but yeah, I love that movie for Tom Hanks and uh, for uh, Megan. Meg Ryan. Meg Ryan. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we'll uh, watch that and have all sorts of fun things to talk about. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm down for that 100. percent So. Um. You have a little announcement. Yeah. So uh, last episode we had the announcement of the announcement. Uh, was supposed to be the announcement, but like we said, then life got in the way, and we had to push things back. Uh, but we're finally there. Um, like we said, we are starting a new podcast. Uh, it's kind of a book club-ish sort of a podcast. Uh, it is called Incredibly Daring. And in it, um, Jason, myself, and our friend Jill uh, read choose-your-own-adventure books to each other and make a mess of it. And go on an adventure. Yeah. So if you're listening to this episode when it's released on Friday the 17th, um, the week after, the 24th, we will be dropping the first three episodes of Incredibly Daring. Uh, they will all be on our website at stupendosaurusrex.com. And then from there, we will work on getting them on uh, iTunes and Stitcher and all that. So you'll have to go to our website in order to find them. They'll have their own section. Um, and you'll be able to download them straight from there if you want. And we'll have episodes one, two, and three up there. And then after that, every off week, we'll have, you know, uh, an episode of Stupendous Source Rex. And then the next week, we'll have an episode of Incredibly Daring. So uh, hopefully you'll you'll check that out. It's pretty fun. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, website is stupendousaurusrex.com. Uh, Twitter is stupendous underscore Rex. Um, Facebook is stupendousaurus Rex. Uh, stupendousaurus Rex at Gmail. Um, if you want to send us emails, you can find us on YouTube, stupendousaurus Rex. Um, I don't know, and you can find us on um, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Um, I looked into the Spotify thing a little bit more. And still haven't heard back from them on anything. I really don't think that we're going to wind up getting on Spotify until they increase their host list. So whenever that happens, uh, we'll try and get back on there. And if you guys have a, fav- a favorite podcast catcher that you use, uh, let us know. And we'll we'll try to get on there for you. So, Bye, guys. Bye. <laughs>